Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. And this is the episode where so much of it connects. Back in the first few episodes of this podcast, we touched on the swinging hot spot of the 60s in Beverly Hills called the Daisy. The Daisy was a super exclusive club that Nick and Lenny and a lot of other people belong to. The Daisy is also the club where a young Nicole Brown is working as a hostess when she meets O.J. Simpson. But long before the Daisy was the place, there was a legendary restaurant, a hangout for the stars that operated in the same location, but operating throughout the time of old Hollywood. This place is Romanoff's, and its flamboyant owner, Michael Romanoff, has quite a storied history. Not just his life, but the life that takes place in Romanoff's for two decades. And lucky for us, our man Dominic covered it all. It is this kind of piece from Dunn that all of the groundwork that we have done in our podcast journey so far, I feel all comes together. There are so many spiderwebs in this richly detailed portrait. This is an example of Dunn's writing that to me is so delicious. It is in these kind of pieces that you really get the synthesis of the world that he is writing about so effortlessly. Thank you, Dominic. Before we get started today, though, I have a spyglass here where I spy some names that I want to give some thanks and praise to. Melissa N. and Ted the Cat. Holy cats. I am so delighted to welcome you both to the Done and Done Patreon community getting ad-free episodes and bonus content too. Your support is appreciated, and I am so grateful to you and our entire Patreon community, and to you, investigator darlings. It's time to put on your glad rags, and let's take a trip back in time to Romanoff's. Pulling this bit from the introduction of Dominic Dunn's April 1999 piece from Vanity Fair titled The Little Prince. Mike Romanoff claimed he was a Russian prince, educated at Eton and Oxford, and a former commander of a Cossack regiment. In reality, he was a tailor's son from Vilna, who spent miserable years as a deportee, conman, and thief. But his ultimate identity was forged by Romanoff's, the legendary Beverly Hills restaurant he opened in 1939 with the backing of Jock Whitney, Alfred Vanderbilt, and Lawrence Rockefeller. Dominic Dunn recalls a man whose audacious style won him the hand of the elegant Gloria Lister, the friendship of Clark Gable, Sam Goldwyn, and Humphrey Bogart, and the status of Hollywood royalty. Intriguing, right? Let's investigate. Wow. 
What a truly extraordinary time, old Hollywood. Let's go back in time today to Romanoffs. And although we're going to center much of this episode on Nick's writing about Mike Romanoff and his swell hotspot, I do love it when I run into friends in research. A good friend of Dun and Dunn, Martin Turnbull, has the most amazing opening line to his piece on Romanoffs, which I feel is thoroughly astute and cleverly reveals what I feel our man Nick is revealing in his piece. Beautiful here from Martin Turnbull. Only in a town built on the wispy foundations of Ballyhoo, Baloney, and Bull could a man like Michael Romanoff open a restaurant like Romanoff's and actually get away with it for over 20 years. <laughs> wispy foundations of Ballyhoo, Baloney, and Bull. I think there's a lot of truth to this, and I dare say Dominic Dunn maybe feels the same way. I love how Nick opens his piece, and it is with a quote from Mike Romanoff. My mother was a Romanoff and my father an Obolinsky. Yes, I trained at Eton and Oxford and served as an officer in both the British and Russian armies. I was still at Oxford when the war broke out. My schoolmates were all going down, so I asked my emperor's permission to fight with them. I was in the 10th Hussars for two years when my emperor called me home to command a regiment of Cossacks. That's fair enough from Mike Romanoff, but have you caught the theme so far? To contrast, these are Dunn's opening words in his piece. There is not a single word of truth in that statement. <laughs> uh, part of an interview which appeared in the St. Louis Star on March 15, 1923. Fabrication and impersonation are part of this story and the hero might be best described as an imposter. Prince Michael Romanoff, the renowned Beverly Hills restaurateur with the Imperial Manor and such best friends as Spencer Tracy, Clark Gable, Humphrey Bogart, and Frank Sinatra, was Bern Herschel Gaguzin, the sixth child of Yiddish-speaking parents in Mina, a Russian territory which subsequently became part of Poland and then Lithuania. His birth occurred several months after the death of his father, a tailor, who had intervened as a peacemaker in a street fight during a visit to Warsaw. His mother, Hindi, took over her husband's business, which consisted primarily of making uniforms for local police, and left the bringing up of Herschel to her oldest daughter, Olga. From the beginning, the boy was a truant and a runaway, a cause of concern to his already overburdened mother. In 1900, when Joseph Bloomberg, a cousin or uncle, depending on which version you come across, decided to immigrate to America with his family, Hindi prevailed on him to take Herschel along. He was six or eight or ten years old. As with everything else in his life, versions vary. But one thing was certain, he would never return to Vilna. That's quite a setup, right? How does this all shake down? This is Dominic's continued telling of the story. By the time the Bloomberg family settled in New York, Joseph Bloomberg was out of patience with his mischievous, willful relative. As for Herschel, the feeling was mutual. He was placed in a Hebrew orphanage, the first of six institutions, of various denominations and in various locales that he would run away from. He was branded as incorrigible. Somewhere along the way, one of the institutions named him Harry Gergeson, a name he despised, but it stayed with him throughout his youth, 
until he emerged under a number of aliases suggesting far grander pedigree. Arthur Wesley, Willoughby de Burke, Count Gladstone. He endured years of miserable living as a runaway, a stowaway, a jailbird, a check bouncer, a deportee, an escapee from Ellis Island, a fraud, a confidence man, and even a thief. He often slept on floors, in doorways, on park benches, and in barns. Early on, he felt an attraction to people of quality, and he had an ability to make himself agreeable to them. Little and likable, he was the kind of bad boy people wanted to help. Society ladies who did charity work in orphanages took him under their wing, having him for weekends at their houses in the country. A gifted mimic, he could entertain his betters with astonishing stories. An early benefactor said about him, he was one of the most convincing liars you ever met. In these situations, the orphan who would become a prince saw the kind of life he wanted to live. The problem was getting there. And herein lies this amazing story. And what a scene, a happening, and what magic in the world is this curious, complicated child going to create? Continuing from Dunn, later Mike would claim that he had attended Eton, Oxford, Heidelberg, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, although Oxford figured most importantly in his tales. It is possible that he may have been employed for a time as the valet of a rich American who attended the English university. He also claimed at different times that he had killed a German nobleman in a duel, that he had spent World War I on the Eastern Front as a Cossack colonel, that he had been in the Foreign Legion and with Field Marshal Edmund Allenby in Palestine. Along the way, he became a great reader of Russian history and developed a special fascination with the fate of Russia's royal family. As the Russian aristocracy and nobility scattered and fell into total disarray, Harry Gergeson's chances of detection were lessened. On an ocean liner crossing the Atlantic, his impersonation of a nephew of the late Tsar Nicholas of Russia endeared him to the first-class passengers until he was unmasked as a stowaway by the ship's captain and led off by the police when the ship docked in New York. Journalists noted that he was never more princely than when he was being exposed as a fraud. He was taken to Ellis Island, from which he made a highly publicized escape that marked the beginning of his celebrity. Isn't this incredible? Mike Romanoff, like the most lovable cad. Everyone knows he's a fraud, but Mike Romanoff really sliding into that skid. Dunn will continue. Another time, he passed himself off as the American artist Rockwell Kent, who had befriended him during one of his frequent down-and-out periods by giving him lodging and employment. British tailors, bootmakers, jewelers, and tobacconists had him arrested and jailed four times on charges of fraud, ignoring his protestations that Russian nobles settled their accounts with tradespeople only once a year. But done is not done, and this is the kind of detail that he is so good for, and he always delivers. Dunn writes, My favorite story about him is that during one of his longer incarcerations, he would carry a smart walking stick during the exercise period. 
Once, he swiped gold-backed military brushes from Paul Mellon of the Pittsburgh Mellons and later insisted the monogrammed initials PM on them stood for Prince Michael. One more interesting bit here that connects a few of our players. This is not from Dominic Dunn. This is from Nick Harville Libraries. Just want to set this in the stage here. Back in 1924, Prince Michael Romanoff attempts to crash a Newport, Rhode Island ball hosted by Reginald and Gloria Vanderbilt. These are the parents of the Gloria Vanderbilt we have covered in that famous custody case. Reginald and Gloria had spent most of their May-December marriage in Europe hobnobbing with minor royals and genuine Romanovs. As such, Gloria knew enough to quiz this alleged Romanov exile on his claimed lineage. Mike naturally becomes a little flustered, and when he could not answer her, Gloria ejects him from the party. Gloria proclaims, The truth of the matter is that you are no more Prince Michael Romanov than I am, because he does not exist. Gloria might like her moment at the top here, and this happens all the way back in 1924, when Mike Romanoff is still trying to break in and realize the dreams that he has. Mike Romanoff and Big Mama Gloria Vanderbilt will meet again, this time many years later, when their positions in life are quite reversed. Gloria and her twin sister, Telma, do live in California, right on Maple Drive, just about a mile away from Romanoff's in their later years. And the twins' financial circumstances definitely are not what they used to be. But it is in this home on Maple that Mama Gloria will host a wedding reception for her daughter, young Gloria's, first marriage to Pat DeSico. Mike Romanoff is a guest at this party and comes in this time with his credentials unchallenged. Although he will get in a fight later on that night with Errol Flynn. But our man Mike, he wants to be a legend, and a legend will be born. Mike Romanoff knows he needs to get to Hollywood, which he will in 1927 as a technical advisor. But once again, like a lot of Mike's life, he's exposed here as a fraud. He's brought on to help translate the Russian language. There's a Russian general who needs translation, but Mike can't speak Russian. Maybe not the smartest fraud to get into, but it is almost a decade later, in 1936, that Michael Romanoff will return to Hollywood, but not without a few stops along the way. The first one of these is in New Orleans, and within the Big Easy, Mike Romanoff will stop with his fancy monograms to dine at a place called Antoine's. This is one of the city's swankiest places to dine. Mike Romanoff does not care for his dinner in particular, but it is here in Antoine's that his big idea is born. The experience of this place sparks something in him, and Mike knows that a restaurant is something that he could totally do. Food and wine and friends and bringing them all together. Mike also knows he's a pretty good organizer. Easy peasy, I know what I want to do. Mike will make it from New Orleans to Hollywood, and here Mike's going to get by with a little bit of help from his friends. Not the first time, not the last. 
Mike is going to find a room to rent. The going rate is $2.50 a week. But here again, continuing from Dunn, he shared his room with Prince Yuka Trebetskoy, who had no money but wore great clothes. In years to come, Trubetskoy went on to marry Marcia Stranahan, the champion spark plug heiress, while his brother, Prince Igor Trubetskoy, went on to become one of the many husbands of Barbara Hutton, the Woolworth five-and-dime heiress. Mike will always keep important company, even beginning in his early Hollywood days. Barbara Hutton is only one of the heiresses that we'll be talking about in this arc, but Mike is going to move up in the world. He's going to begin to share better places. One of these is with the first husband of the 17-year-old young Gloria Vanderbilt. You know him, failed car salesman and failed talent agent Pat DeSico, who previously had been married to the ice cream blonde Thelma Todd. And Pat DeSico will go on to thoroughly abuse sweet young Gloria. Remember, Pat DeSico is a cousin to Cubby Broccoli, who will go on to produce the James Bond films. Adding one other little spiderweb in to connect us all together for you, one of the inspirations for Ian Fleming's 007 James Bond character is the playboy and much-married Porfirio Ruby Rosa. Old Ruby Rosa, he of the infamous endowment, will be married in his lifetime to both Barbara Hutton and Doris Duke, the rivaling heiresses. Stay tuned for that one, investigators. I hope that you're getting an idea of how it all connects together, and we are only just getting started. Prince Michael Romanoff really does kind of have a way of getting in the middle of it all. Prince Michael will realize his dream, opening Romanoff's in 1939 on North Rodeo Drive in the building that will, many years later, become the home to the Daisy, described by Dominic Dunn as Hollywood's famous private discotheque. Mike's been in Hollywood two years. How does he fund Romanoff's his restaurant dream? Dominic is going to tell us. He continues, Mike sold $50 shares to such people as Harry Crocker, of the San Francisco Crockers, the movie star sisters Constance and Joan Bennett, and many of the studio heads. Jock Whitney, Alfred Vanderbilt, and Lawrence Rockefeller put up the big money in $5,000 shares. On opening night, all of the investors were invited, but Romanoff had overlooked one thing. There was no cash in the cash register. Mike told Cary Grant of his plight, and Grant, although notoriously tight-fisted, had his butler bring boxes of cash from his house and saved the night. Just ponder all of that name-dropping in just a few short sentences. All of these players are going to come back into my story, but Dunn will continue. It's this next bit, I think, that'll knock your socks off. From the beginning, the restaurant was a success. Mike understood the importance of mixing groups, even the Los Angeles establishment, the old families such as the Doheny's and the Chandler's, who generally gave Hollywood people a wide berth, became regulars. The word spread. It was wartime, and traveling Washington dignitaries always dropped by. 
the only restaurant of consequence that rivaled Romanoff's for the A group was Chasen's. Chasen's is another story for another day, but continuing the previous paragraph, Dunn, I think, really nails down the idea of community and colony here, and will continue to do so through the remainder of this piece. He will describe the scene this way. Beverly Hills was a village in those days, and Rodeo Drive bore no resemblance to the Rodeo Drive of today. Mike would stroll up and down it and check in with the shopkeepers. The actress, Gail Patrick, who played Carol Lombard's mean sister in the film classic, My Man Godfrey, had a shop called Gail Patrick's Enchanted Cottage, which sold rich kid baby clothes. There was a wonderful old-fashioned bookstore called Marion Hunter's, and shortly after Mike moved to his second location, a South Seas hangout called the Luau, which was owned by Stephen Crane, the father of Cheryl Crane, who knifed Johnny Stompanato, the gangster lover of her mother, Lana Turner, to death. Everyone knew everyone else. What a paragraph. As we continue to explore both old and new Hollywood and how much they're going to mesh together in the next decades, this is such a good example. And Mike Romanoff, always looking out, man on the make, getting by with a little help from his friends. Dunn will write about one of these friends. One day, a young German named Kurt Nicholas walked into the old Romanovs and asked for a job as a waiter. It was shortly after World War II, and men with German accents were not warmly regarded. He was tall and slender, with an attitude that could be interpreted as arrogant. The captain took an instant dislike to him and told him to get lost. From the sidelines, Mike, who had been watching the exchange, called the young man over. He had seen something in him. Nicholas went on to work for him as a waiter and soon became the favorite of customers such as Charlie Chaplin. Then Mike made him a captain. When the restaurant moved to a larger location on South Rodeo Drive, Nicholas went along and eventually became the maitre d'. Kurt Nicholas will go on to have a whole new history in Hollywood, but for the meantime, we're going to keep him at Romanoff's, where it's all happening, but not even how much it's going to be after 1944 and a particular party that Mike Romanoff will arrange that utterly puts him on the map. Dominic Dunn will explain, The thing that cinched the career for which Mike had been born was a still-remembered social event of 1944 called the Cad's Ball. In those days, stars were really stars, groomed by their studios. They dressed up. They went out to dinner. They gave parties and the other stars came. A quartet of the town's best-known bachelors, Cary Grant, James Stewart, Eddie Duchin, and the social figure John McLean, whose mother, Evelyn Walsh McLean, owned the Hope Diamond, decided to give a ball to pay back all of their hostesses. Mike Romanoff masterminded the whole thing. What he understood better than anyone else was how to give a party. He took over the Clover Club. Eddie Duchin provided two bands. Hoagie Carmichael played the piano. The party went on until dawn. Dinner and breakfast were served, and most important of all, every beautiful girl in town was invited. I mean, listen to those legendary names, y'all. Dunn is looking for impressions of this evening for this piece. 
So he's going to reach out to a few of his friends, the leading high society hostess ladies of Hollywood, you know them, Mrs. Billy Wilder and Mrs. Fred de Cordova. But at the time, these gals are not married yet to their famous husbands. But both of them will share their memories of that night with our man Nick, as he describes. And then there were Audrey Young, the band singer, and Janet Thomas, a starlet. And all these years later, they remembered the night in detail. Jimmy Stewart brought Rita Hayworth, said Janet de Cordova. Jane Greer, Myrna Dell, and I saw Annabella break up with Ty Power that night, said Audrey Wilder. Lila Lee came in with Howard Hughes, Janet de Cordova said. And Lila and I were both wearing red. And Howard Hughes says you can't both wear red dresses. And he called Howard Greer, the designer. And Howard opened up his shop and sent over a blue dress for Lila. This bit's delightful. <laughs> Audrey Wilder continues. Oh, listen, while we're on the subject of Romanoffs, I want to straighten something out. I did not hit Randolph Churchill in the face with a fish that night, the way the papers said I did. He said, oh, shut up, you ridiculous woman, and then said it again. So I just slapped him with my napkin across his face. He was impossible. He was so rude. As my conversations with them ended, Dunwrights, each woman said, I loved Mike. So many loved Mike, and he created quite the place. This is a fantastic time for us to take a break and hear from our sponsors this week. We're going to be back with more Mike, his elegant, lovely wife, and the story of their extraordinary love, as well as the rest of the story. See you on the flip. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? So we have made it to the 1940s, 1950s. Romanoff's is firmly cemented as a hotspot. Let's enter into the scene, Dominic Dunn. He will recall in his writing about his time at Romanoff's. The first time I went to dinner at Romanoff's, Beverly Hills' fabled bastion of the rich, powerful, and famous of the film industry, it was everything I had heard it was going to be. Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, looking gorgeous, were seated to the left as I entered the main room. Nearby was the flame-haired MGM star Greer Garson with her oil-rich Texas husband, Buddy Fogelson. And at another table was the glamorous Mrs. Billy Wilder, the wife of the famous director, in a party that included the actor Charles Lawton and Randolph Churchill, the son of the former Prime Minister of England. Back then, from the mid-50s to the early 60s when the restaurant closed, it was always like that. Star-studded was the term gossip columnists invariably used to describe Romanoff's. But his recollections are not done. Dominic will continue. Equal in stature to the stars, though, was the ringmaster of the Enterprise, Prince Michael Romanoff, a bona fide celebrity himself, whose feats of bravura and daring do 
from immigrant child to Russian prince, had entertained the public for a quarter of a century and been documented by Alva Johnston in a five-part profile in The New Yorker in 1932. Unhandsome and small of stature, he was nevertheless a great favorite with the ladies right up to his past middle-age marriage. It was Mike who arranged for Marilyn Monroe to meet Johnny Hyde, the William Morris agent, one day at lunch in the restaurant, and it was Johnny Hyde who turned Marilyn into a star. Mike's perfect grace and style immediately drew attention away from his physical shortcomings. There he stood in the center of things, greeting his patrons in a deep baritone, English-accented, aristocratic voice, addressing his pals as old boy, kissing the hands of favored ladies, enjoying himself immensely, as if it were a wonderful party he was perpetually giving, and the famous never tired of wanting to be where he was. He was one of them. He belonged. He was a part of the social world, of the people he seated at the best tables. A lot of private shenanigans took place at Romanoff's, in both business and romantic areas, but Mike never leaked a word to Hedda Hopper or Luella Parsons, the rival gossipists of the period, who lunched and dined there themselves. I never saw him when he wasn't wonderfully dressed, even for playing croquet on weekends at Samuel Goldwyn's estate, where he was a regular. There seemed to be no occasion for which he didn't have the perfect outfit. It was Mike Romanoff who taught Clark Gable how to dress the way a dashing movie star should. When Mike smoked, he made a minor ritual of the process, in the way he took a cigarette from his gold case, tapped it, and lit it with a gold lighter, and then curved his finger around it, in a unique manner as he inhaled with the utmost satisfaction. His presence and personality were so compelling that the restaurant lost its luster on the rare nights he was not there. But Mike is mostly always there. He's legendary in the scene. But Mike, still a single guy. But he will find the love of his life, and this love will help him continue to set his name on the map. Dominic Dunn will recall their meeting and courtship and romance this way. Gloria Lister came to Hollywood with her family from Rhode Island in 1943. She went to work for Paul Frankel, an avant-garde furniture designer who had a studio on Rodeo Drive. One day Mike came into the studio with Fanny Bryce, the great comedian, who dabbled on the side as a decorator for her friends. Romanoff had recently bought his first house, and Fanny was doing it up for him. After they left, Frankel said to Gloria, he was certainly charmed by you. Gloria told me, I thought he was different and amusing and interesting. He was never a man who had an appetite for acquiring money. He wanted an interesting life. Despite a 34-year age difference, they began to go out socially. I was never a kid-kid, said Gloria. I always preferred the company of older people. Mike's close friends at that time were Robert Benchley, the humorist, the movie mogul, Daryl Zanuck and his wife Virginia, and Humphrey Bogart, who was then married to the famously hot-tempered Mayo Metho. 
Their public fights were legendary. Mayo was a reasonably contained woman when she wasn't drinking, said Gloria. She left her job with Frankel and went to work for Mike at his restaurant. He needed someone to organize his office. Romanoff was very much the front of the houseman, the greeter, the charmer. Gloria managed the rest. Romance soon entered the picture. I was quite serious about Michael, she told me. This was the man I wanted to marry. But Mike, who had never been married and liked the ladies, was not the marrying kind. Gloria decided to move on. She decamped to Palm Beach as a secretary and companion to the famous socialite of the period named Dolly O'Brien, a Waterbury, Connecticut beauty who had married well several times and was then in the midst of a highly publicized affair with Clark Gable. Holy catch, y'all, this is where it gets so good you're not even going to see it coming. Mike missed her. As luck would have it, Winthrop Rockefeller, the youngest son of John D. Rockefeller Jr., was marrying a showgirl singer named Barbara Sears, known as Bobo, whom Mike had known in Hollywood, at the Palm Beach home of the socially distinguished Winston and CZ guest. Bobo has turned up in the two Mrs. Grenvilles in fictional form, remember, as Babette Van Degen. Mike went from Los Angeles for the wedding, and Dolly O'Brien gave him a dinner party with a guest list that included all the great Palm Beach names, as well as the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, who were on their annual winter sojourn at the resort. Several decades later, when the Duke was the Prince of Wales and Mike was still passing himself off as the nephew of Tsar Nicholas's and the son of the man who'd killed Rasputin, he had often referred to the Duke in interviews as Cousin David. Like many who had figured in Mike's stories, the Duke was charmed by him. Gloria remembers that Lawrence and Nelson Rockefeller, the wary brothers of the groom, kept quizzing Mike right up until the wedding ceremony about the social acceptability of Bobo Sears. Everyone knew Michael from his speakeasy days in New York, said Gloria. After the wedding, Mike lingered for a few days. Finally, he said, I'd like us to be married. Gloria finished up the season with Dolly O'Brien and returned to the West Coast. They chartered a plane and were married in Las Vegas on the 4th of July, 1948, after attending a party that day in Los Angeles. Gloria was 24. Mike was 58. I'm never going to be rich, he told his bride, but we'll have an interesting life, an adventure. They moved into the house on Chevy Chase Drive in Beverly Hills that Fanny Bryce had decorated for him. He was heaven to live with, said Gloria. He was terrified of getting married, but he loved it. So Mike has a new bride. Gloria, his bride, is in love, but so many others love Prince Michael Romanoff. A lot of the folks that we have talked about, again, have some recollections of their own. Dunn will recall two more here. The first from one of my favorites, made of moonbeams herself, Carol Marcus Soroyan. Regarding this love of Mike, Dominic will continue. Everyone says that. Carol Marcus Soroyan Sororan Mathau, one of the debutante triumvirate that included Gloria Vanderbilt, 
and Una O'Neill told me over the phone in L.A., Mike was the sweetest, nicest man who ever lived. Una and I were out here alone when we were about 16 or 17. We wanted to go to Romanoff's to see all the stars. We often went there for lunch. We never got a bill. Mike would say, You're two little babies. You can have anything you want in here. He'd sit down with us and ask where we were going. When we told him, he'd sometimes say, Oh no, don't go there. or You mustn't see so-and-so. He really cared. But Dominic is not done. Along comes a recollection from Robert Wagner. Oh, RJ. Dunn will continue. Robert Wagner, the movie and television star who was married to the late Natalie Wood and whose friends all call him RJ, also remembers Mike with affection. Mike was a true prince, far more than some of the princes I've met, he said. We were having lunch at Shea Mimi in Santa Monica. Like me, he enjoys talking about old times. He remembered some of the great nights at Romanoff's. Natalie had her 21st birthday party there, and Sinatra gave it for her. I was there the night Jane Mansfield made up her nipples when she was sitting next to Sophia Loren at the Boy on the Dolphin premiere. The studio wanted me to wear my Prince Valiant costume to the premiere party at Romanoff's, but I only wore the wig and someone from the studio took me over to meet Joan Crawford, who was sitting in a booth. And I knelt down to speak to her, and she said, Get up. She didn't like the way her neck looked in photographs when she was looking down. Then he added, God, I miss Mike. Every year he'd send me a present, like a silk scarf. For you, my boy, he'd say. Isn't this writing incredible? I do think, honestly, this is a piece where Dominic Dunn just shines and how his whole world comes together. This is him writing in 1999, smack dab in the middle of his third act and having re-entered Hollywood as a success. Dominic does have a few more stories to drop about some legendary names in this piece, which is what we love and appreciate about him so much. I think Dunn nails it here. If you were a swell in Hollywood in the late 1950s, one of the swellest events you could be invited to was Saturday afternoon croquet at Sam Goldwyn's. The Goldwyn's lived in a beautiful white brick mansion with lovely grounds and a croquet court on par with those at English castles. I went a few times just to watch because I knew Sammy Goldwyn Jr. The ladies who came to look looked pretty and all the players were gents. Herbert Bayard Swope Jr., a producer at 20th Century Fox, whose father, the editor of the New York World, had the best croquet court on Long Island, was a regular, as was the producer, William Hawks, who sometimes brought his famous brother, Howard, the director. Louis Jordan, the French film star who still lives in Beverly Hills, was always there. So was the movie star, George Sanders, who was then married to Zsa Zsa Gabor. People like that, but the one you couldn't take your eyes off was Prince Mike Romanoff. And this is really the brilliance of Dominic and all of his connections. His six degrees of separation is truly incredible. He will write in this piece, Recently I phoned Sam Goldwyn Jr., who is no longer called Sammy. He lives in his parents' old house. Even though we were talking on the telephone, I knew he was smiling when I asked him about the bitter rivalry on the croquet court between his father and Mike Romanoff. 
Sam Goldwyn, was a studio head and a very imposing figure who used to scare me to death. My father and Mike had these terrible fights because my father would cheat, said Sam. They'd fight over the issue of starting over or moving a ball, and they'd look to me for justice, and it was a lose-lose either way. My father was ready to disown me for disloyalty, and Mike would say, Even though he's your father, you have to be fair, Sammy. Sometimes their fights got so bad, they were never going to speak to each other again. And then my mother and Gloria Romanoff had to step in and intercede so that they could all go in to dinner. A bit of an interesting spiderweb here, friends. Samuel Goldwyn Jr., the son of Sam Goldwyn, is married to a lady named Jennifer Howard. This is his first wife, who is the daughter of Sidney Howard who will get the credit for finishing the screenplay of Gone with the Wind, famously produced by David O. Selznick. But notably, this pair of Sam Goldwyn Jr. and Jennifer Howard have a few kids. One of those kids, Tony Goldwyn, a fantastic actor. You know him from Ghost. You know him from Scandal. It's a fun little spiderweb for you. Tony Goldwyn will attend his father's high school in Colorado. This is called the Fountain Valley School. Tony and all of the Goldwyn kids will go there. But at the time that Tony is attending Fountain Valley, so is Dominic's daughter, Dominique. Tony and Dominique will attend high school together and even appear opposite each other in an Agatha Christie play at the school. Again, the community that Dunn is able to weave. But friends, the good times do not last forever, and it is on New Year's Eve in 1962 that Romanoff's will close its legendary doors. Its time has passed, but it creates so many other things. Dunn will write, Nicholas opened his own restaurant, The Bistro, in which I was an investor. It became the restaurant of choice for the smart set of Beverly Hills, including Mike Romanoff himself. Kurt, Nicholas, then opened another place down the street, the Bistro Gardens, which is now the site of the new Spago. Recently, Kurt and I met up at the Bistro Garden on Ventura Boulevard in Studio City in the San Fernando Valley, a beautiful restaurant that looks very much like the old Bistro. Kurt is now 72 years old and still has that attitude that could be interpreted as arrogant, but that's just a part of him. He told me that he had remarried his first wife, Mimi, and that she sent her love. Years ago, their kids and my kids went to Catholic Sunday school together at Good Shepherd Church in Beverly Hills. Kurt brought with him the manuscript of his unpublished autobiography. Everything you want to know about Mike Romanoff is in this book, he said, placing it on the table. He said he couldn't get a publisher because he wasn't a celebrity like Mike. I read his book, enjoyed it, and learned a lot I hadn't known. He describes Mike the first day he saw him. He was dapper in riding breeches, leather boots, a tailored tweed jacket, and a silk ascot. He had a brush haircut, jug ears, a military mustache, and a bulldog named Confucius. (laughs) Kurt told me one anecdote that is in the book. Elizabeth Taylor came in one night and dropped her sable coat on the floor. And then Mike Todd dropped his coat on the floor, and I wouldn't pick the coats up. And Mr. Romanoff said, leave them there, Kurt. He spoke in an amazingly accurate imitation of Mike's high-class voice. 
Ah, oh, Dominic, thank you in perpetuity for your amazing insights and connections. You recall the love and affection that Dominic Dunn has for both Mike and his wife, Gloria. Dominic, in writing this piece, will meet with Gloria Romanoff and write. I hadn't seen Gloria Romanoff, Mike's widow, for years. Sometime after Mike's death in 1971, Gloria moved away from Los Angeles, as did I. We lost touch. When I contacted her about this article, she said she would prefer to meet me in Beverly Hills rather than in the town where she lives. On a Saturday morning in January of this year, I watched her walk into the lobby of the Beverly Hills Hotel. Nowadays, most of the women I know and even some of the men alter their features with plastic surgery after a certain age, and it takes a moment, sometimes longer, to adjust to the revised version. Not so with Gloria. She's gone along with the natural process of time, and she looked great. Her hair is partially gray. Classy was the word that came to mind. She wore a dark blue suit and a string of pearls. She said she had just driven by her old house on North Beverly Drive, not far from the hotel, where she and Mike, whom she always called Michael and still does, lived for so long next to her great friend, Rosalind Russell. She could barely recognize the house. Subsequent owners had changed it so much. It was a wonderful house, Spanish in style, at least back then. I reminded her of a long-ago dinner dance she and Mike gave in that house for the visiting Alfred Vanderbilt, who had a horse running at Santa Anita. It was when Cary Grant was courting Diane Cannon, and they never stopped dancing the whole night. So in love they seemed to be, but the marriage that followed didn't last long. I could just eat it up. It's my favorite stuff. Goodness, Dunn continues... Gloria spoke about Mike's sense of fellowship. After the gentleman film producer, Walter Wanger, fired a gun pointed at the testicles of Hollywood agent Jennings Lang, whom he suspected of having an affair with his movie star wife, Joan Bennett, and was incarcerated in the Beverly Hills Jail, Mike, who knew a thing or two about jails and gentlemen in jeopardy, had a waiter from Romanoff's take him over dinner on a tray. Mike himself later took him silk pajamas and a pipe and tobacco. After the restaurant closed, Gloria told me, I went on working for a while. I ran the Lily Pulitzer shop next to the bistro. Michael went over to Fox to work for Dick Zanuck, who was the head of the studio after his father. His real job was to keep Sinatra in line. Frank had a deal with Fox for a couple of pictures. Did I tell you that Michael was Dick Zanuck's godfather? Dominic Dunn gets all the hot gossip. Ride to close this out, finishing from Dominic. It is said, and this story did not come from Gloria, that at the very end in the hospital, Mike asked everyone to leave the room, the doctors, the nurses, whomever. Then he looked at Gloria and said, Not you, my darling. And he died. The day after I saw Gloria, I had lunch with Nancy Reagan at the Bel Air Hotel. How was Gloria Romanoff, she asked. I told her. I haven't seen her in years, said Nancy, thinking back. That night I had dinner with Lou and Edie Wasserman at Dantana's. How was Gloria Romanoff, asked Edie. I told her. I haven't seen her in years, she said. Like her late husband, Gloria Romanoff is remembered with great affection. I recently called Prince Alexander Romanoff in New York. 
He is a genuine Romanoff of the family, in line in the highly unlikely event of a restoration, who did not attend last year's burial of Nicholas and Alexandra in St. Petersburg only because he was ill. Oh yes, I met him twice in my youth. He was full of invention, said the prince about Michael Romanoff. I was taken to the restaurant, and all the stars were there. I thought he was exceedingly ugly. We said just a few words to each other. My hostess said about me to him, Alexander is a real Romanoff. He replied, but I am the only Mike Romanoff. And friends, that has to be true. There is only one Prince Michael Romanoff and only one Romanoffs, the legendary hotspot for two decades. What a ride this week. Thank you for tuning in for our trip through time today. What a story. Thank you, Dominic Dunn, for your insights, your connections, all your dishy, dishy universe. I love it so much and adore all of you. Thank you for listening, for your kind emails, for your kind reviews. If you need a little bit more Dominic Dunn in your life, you can check us out at patreon.com slash done and done to explore those benefits. And until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.